Hey, hello and welcome to the next IPO podcast. Um, thank you for joining into our channel. If you haven't listened to an IPO podcast before, then you may be wondering, who are the IPO? So we are the Intellectual Property Office and are the government department that are responsible for intellectual property rights, patents for inventions, trademarks for brands and designs for the appearance of goods. And last but not least, copyright, which protects artistic and creative works such as photos, films, music and software. Today's podcast takes a turn from general IP business advice to a more enforcement focus and will be the first in a series of enforcement related podcasts from the IPO. And today the annual IP crime report is being launched on behalf of the IP crime group. The IP crime group is made up of a very broad spectrum of government departments, law enforcement and industry. And I am delighted to be joined today by Giles York who is the Chief Constable of Sussex Police and the Chair of the IP Crime Group. Giles, welcome. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for being with us today. Giles, you've been the Chair of the IP Crime Group for over 10 years. Can you tell me, what is it that has inspired you to continue in the role, given your current high-profile position as Chief Constable in Sussex Police? And perhaps talk to us about the important role that this group plays in the fight against IP crime and the impact IP crime plays on the economy. I'd be delighted to, Chris. There are probably two things that maintain my inspiration in this particular area. Of course, I'm absolutely passionate about policing. And you may be wondering, why is policing a priority in the world of unlawful downloads or films or anything else like that? And one of the things for me in this that I'm absolutely passionate about is public safety. And that is where policing and the IPO, more than anything else, do cross over. And it's when you get dodgy goods, unlawfully made, unlawfully sold in this country, start causing harm to the public, absolutely it has to be a policing priority. The other reason why I'm still being inspired by this area is the variety that it presents. The IP crime group itself, I think, is a pretty unique group. And having been the privilege to be the chair of it for probably over 10 years now, I do try to offer my resignation every year to the IPO and they haven't accepted it yet to try and find some new blood coming through. But the breadth of different people that we have at that group I find just fascinating because it is government departments, Home Office, Ministry of Justice through the Crown Prosecution Service, Biz, the IPO themselves in there and even HMRC around where are we losing revenue in taxes and people importing stuff unlawfully is quite a mix of government represented at the group. Not only is government there, but enforcement is there as well. Policing is represented in there, the National Crime Agency is represented in there, trading standards are of course an absolutely key player with us on the enforcement front from the state. But we're also joined by industry enforcement, people like FACT, people by the, like the BPI, who uh, bring a really strong case and strong support to an awful lot of what we do on behalf of the state, and they get what the business is about. The third element that we're joined by at the IP Crime Group is industry themselves, those who are really interested in making a difference in this area. So you ask me where my inspiration comes from. One, I think is the right thing for policing to be doing, to be protecting the public from everyday commodities that they may not even see any threat in. And the second part of it is that variety that we're able to get through from the breadth of the membership there, 
from government departments, through the variety of enforcement agencies and the industry themselves in the room. I think that's a pretty unique mix. And sometimes what we've seen when we've been visited by the Italians, the Americans, the Indians, they have nothing like this. Thank you, Giles. That is um, a, a really good description of what is clearly a, an effective and cosmopolitan group of people coming together. With your continuous involvement with the IP Crime Group and your national responsibility under the Economic Crime Portfolio over the last decade, uh, what significant changes have you witnessed across the IP sort of landscape? I think what's interesting in that question, Chris, is not only necessarily what the changes are, but also what stayed the same. Many of the characters around the table, even today, are the same as when I joined the group over 10 years ago. The reason why policing got so involved at the time that I did is many of the enforcement agencies were going to the different police forces around the country and couldn't get a consistent reply from any of them around what the standard of policing would be in intervening in this area. So before going on to what's changed, actually I think there's huge credit to those people who've worked in this area consistently through all of this time. But again, many of the faces have changed around the table. I've probably worked with, I think, probably half a dozen ministers uh, during my time there. Uh, each of them bringing their own passion to the IP landscape, and particularly IP enforcement. And I think that's probably one of the other areas that I'd say has changed, is the scale of enforcement, and particularly the role that's been played by IPO during that enforcement time. Well, I think when I first joined, they were pretty much a, almost a clerical piece saying, yes, we'll record everything for you, but if you want us to do anything about it, then I think that's down to you. You've got to own that as rights owners. I think IPO have really stepped up to the mark in developing the intelligence hub where rights owners and anybody in the community can put information into a single place. We can draw that information together to make workable intelligence and we've seen the product of that coming out as a single route into policing and other enforcement agencies as well. I have seen police forces engaging better in this area. I've seen people right up to the National Crime Agency getting really coherent and going upstream. What do we mean by upstream? It's going abroad, getting a hold of the counterfeits before they even get into this country is a significant shift that we've seen. And also, I think, again, picking on that theme of what's still the same, the National Markets Group have been targeting markets across the country, you know the ones, the bank holiday markets, the boot fairs and things like that, and getting them to sign up to the real deal. But of course, over the period of time that I've seen here, social media has to be one of the biggest shifts that we've seen as a marketplace for distributing goods. And not only social media, but many of the internet platforms. So when I first came into this world, we were at about grey import skybox cards that people were accessing in order to be able to decode their boxes at home. Now it's about platforms that people access on the internet in order to be able to stream films, sports, any level of programmes, uh, into their rooms unlawfully from overseas. The last bit I'd hit on that I think it kind of plays back into the first, which is around the enforcement. And one of the things the IPO has been able to do over recent years is invest in and fund a dedicated team working nationally but based in the City of London called PIPCU, the Police IP Crime Unit. And one of the key things that they've had uh, running through this time is uh, an operation called Operation Creative, initiative that disrupts illegal websites providing access to unlicensed music, TV and film. And the tactics that they've been using is about taking down those websites 
an online portal that provides digital advertising sector and has established brands with an up-to-date list of copyright infringing sites. And therefore, we're taking that money out of these unlawful sites uh, through uh, targeting the advertising fees that they used to get. Thank you, Giles. Um, that's absolutely fascinating. And you mentioned trading standards. They clearly play a very key role in the local enforcement picture. You've talked about some of the national work going on there. Uh, perhaps is uh, an opportunity to highlight some of the important delivery that they, they bring at a local level that could well be worth highlighting some of those areas that they've been involved with that are mentioned in the IP crime report. Chris, like so many of us in the public sector and elsewhere in society, we've been under the cost during the years of austerity. No more has, has seen that than trading standards. And there are so many various uh, departments for trading standards. If I thought 43 police forces was high, I think there's over 250 different trading standards departments yes, that's out right. there. So again, there's huge variety in the way that they approach things. But even through that face of adversity, some of the cracking work that Trading Standards has been doing is still on our high streets. Newport City Council Trading Standards was getting intelligence from the Mendy and Pill areas of Newport, selling counterfeit cigarettes and hand-rolling tobacco. They seized nearly 400,000 cigarettes and 34 kilograms of hand-rolling tobacco. This is worth nearly a quarter of a million pounds. On the back of this, they brought 18 prosecutions, fines adding up to nearly £25,000. And I think this is the thing that some people miss, prison sentences adding up to 76 months. The key subject raid revealed huge amounts of tobacco, £42,000 in cash hidden under a bed. The subject had purchased in cash the entire building in Pill, which contained the shop itself, the three flats above. And, the pro- and, th- and this is one of my favourite bits around this, is when we start using the Proceeds of Crime Act. And there's a case pending to take that criminal gain away from these individuals. And so far, it's looking at taking nearly a million pounds worth of criminal gain into HMRC and Gwent Police on the back of that. I think that's a really exciting case because it's keeping the public safer. Who knows what is in these counterfeit cigarettes that they're selling? It's taking out organised crime groups and best of all, that money can be reinvested back into the community to make them even safer. So that's an example of things that happen on our high streets. Again, incredibly familiar to everyone will be eBay, a very visible marketplace that pretty much anyone can access with online capability. And this is one that goes to the other end of the country with Lancashire trading standards, with the assistance of experts from FACT, who we talked about before, members of the IP crime group, Federation Against Copyright Theft, they conducted a number of test purchases of box sets of DVDs from an eBay seller who was eventually traced to an address in Blackburn. Over 800 box sets were seized from a bedroom at the trader's home address. Payments were made to his Chinese suppliers, totaled a four-figure sum, most weeks. Criminal benefit over the last six years of trading was assessed at over £300,000 and a confiscation order of over £100,000 has been made. Again, this shows how we're taking away the gain of criminality, but a really visible marketplace that nearly anybody can access. But what about the closed groups? What about the places that you can't see when you walk down the high street, not everybody has access to? And one of the places where we have seen this operating, there's several available, but one where we have, is closed or even secret Facebook groups. Moray, Council's Trading Standards, 
uh, did an operation for supplying counterfeit goods, and they found an estimated street value of £40,000 in fake Ugg boots, barber jackets and Dr Dre Beats headphones. Branded perfumes, clothing, electricals. I mean, it's a department store all of its own in a secret place on Facebook and accessible by invitation only. So we're now working really closely with the social media providers to be able to break into this. When I first came into this area, we talked about the loss to industry and the loss to government. The trouble with that around the public perception is they're not really too worried about these multi-million pound companies losing money or millionaire rock stars or others losing their revenue. It doesn't really kind of pull on the heartstrings too much for many of the public. So one of the lines that I've been trying to drive ever since is a couple of things that we've hit on here. Don't worry about what they've lost. Worry about what the criminals have gained. And what is the scale of gain that we can see in this? We found an example of somebody selling counterfeit Apple phone cases over the internet. He was selling them at £6 for a counterfeit branded Apple case. £6 each. Do you know what they cost to buy? 20 pence. 20 pence, that's £5.80 profit for pretty much every single case. From the stock seized at his storage unit, uh, he would have profited nearly £150,000. So very low investment, very low risk, huge return on that investment coming back into them. So that's where I really try to put across to the public, this is about criminals taking your money. Thank you, Giles. And that is an absolutely fascinating description of a whole range of areas uh, which might not necessarily be obvious to um, members of the public. And furthermore, you've mentioned about the links to criminality and the Trading Standards Survey in the report highlights some of those links. And it might be that you've, you've got an example um, of how counterfeiting actually impacts other criminality in other areas. I think it does, Chris. Well, I mean, criminals very rarely say, look, look, I'm only a burglar, I don't do anything else. They're kind of into acquisitive crime, they're into theft, uh, and will very rarely stay to one strand of criminality, in my experience, especially when they're operating as crime groups. So they'll diversify and do different types of crime. And certainly what we found was a Southwark trading standards case against Mr Zing Chao Zhu uh, in Peckham in London, where not only did we found significant illicit and counterfeit tobacco products, there was also... Uh, £100,000 worth of cannabis found in his self-storage units. So there's somebody who's, irrespective of what the type of drug is, illicit counterfeit tobacco, cannabis, they don't mind. that There is a huge crossover between people who choose to flout the law in uh, intellectual property crime and across other types of criminality. Thank you, Giles. That's a really interesting insight into when a consumer buys something, where their money might be going. From the changes you've described, would you like to just describe to, um, to the listeners, perhaps, what might be the biggest challenges that, that faces the enforcement piece here? Um, maybe how we've tackled them, um, which has been highlighted in the, in the crime reports for law enforcement, what perhaps some of the consumer behaviours and threats to personal safety might be, and, um, and any awareness issues that you think might be relevant around the IP threat and how it can impact on uh, members of the public. Chris, I'll probably take this in three sections. The first one I'd talk about is the scale of the problem. We have containers coming into the country with counterfeit things inside them. 
If you look at some of the postal hubs and the numbers of parcels that are coming into the country, it's just massive. And also the ability for consumers to access international markets directly is just phenomenal. So you and I, we don't have to go into one of these marketplaces and buy a container full in order to be able to import like we might have done historically. We can just buy one or two things and it's shipped across the world in in no time at all. It really is a global marketplace. And that probably comes on to a second part of the challenge, which is around the enforcement piece. Of course, we have powers in this country. We have powers at the border, but we don't have that same level of authority overseas. So much of the work that I support the IPO on is working with some of our partners in other parts of the world to tackle intellectual property crime. Uh, working with the Chinese, working with the Indian government as well, around saying, all right, how do we protect our rights holders right the way across the globe? And that, of course, demands much closer working across our entire enforcement landscape. It's about policing, working better with trading standards, the National Crime Agency and the industry enforcement parts such as FACT and BPI. The third bit that I'd probably bring through from some of the challenges that we face, Chris, is the public. There's something about the public getting it, that buying a counterfeit is a crime, that you're supporting criminals when you're doing this. I sometimes think that if England had a motto, it would be, if, if it's cheap, I'll have a large one. If it's free, I'll take two. And there's something in the British psyche that is about really hunting down a bargain. But do you know what? Sometimes it's worth paying for. Sometimes the quality is worth paying for but because the cost of a bargain is just too much, whether that is through harm to the public or whether it is through funding criminality. So there really is a huge amount of work that we do with the Intellectual Property Office around trying to educate massive amounts on their website to be saying, letting people understand the impact that this has. Thank you, Charles. That's a fascinating uh, journey through um, some of the uh, IP Crime Report highlights, which I would uh, urge any of the listeners to download and and view themselves. Um, That concludes our podcast today. If you enjoyed it, then please share with your colleagues. And if you want to receive regular business and enforcement updates, then please sign up from the homepage, which is www.gov.uk slash IPO and select business guidance. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. And we also have a YouTube channel with helpful videos and animations. Or if you'd like, you can call our information centre to speak to an IP advisor on the following telephone number, which is 0300 300 2000. Thanks for listening today. And don't forget to find out more podcasts from us. Head over to our podcast channel.